Good evening, afternoon. It's hard to know what time it is. We meet at all different times. Sometimes it's the morning, sometimes it's the evening, sometimes it's actually the afternoon. I, I actually showed up one hour earlier today because I just don't know when to come to church anymore. And I was like sitting in the parking lot being like, I'm an hour early. Shoot. It worked out well, though, because I got to practice this. So that's great. Um, I feel so privileged to get to share with you guys today. Over the past five, I guess it's been five years that Sophia and I have been going to this church. It's just been so incredible to be welcomed and loved by you. And uh, as you're worshiping, I was just like thinking about a bunch of the moments that I've had with a lot of you over the last five years. And it's just been so beautiful and incredible to be part of this community. Um, And we've received so much from it. Um, So we're so grateful for that. And it feels really fun to get to to share with you guys today. So do you want to, let's start by throwing the the verse up on the the screen there. And I'm going to read it. Then we're going to do a little intro thing with the diagrams. And then we're going to go from there. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 to 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's the verse we're going to be looking at today. And that verse is written by a guy named Peter, who becomes one of the pillars of the church. So we're going to, we're going to jump from there all the way back to these fun diagrams and as Jonathan was saying, over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at how the Bible is one story, and it leads toward Jesus as the central figure. And we got to Jesus last week, but I just want to recap for anyone who hasn't been here over the past couple weeks. So we talked about this idea of how the way culture and the way, in honestly, how I viewed things in the past was that there's earth, and then like this is this line is our life, and we're somewhere along this, and uh, this is like an arbitrary line of good and bad. And the goal is to like spend most of your life on the good side. And then whenever like the you get hit by the bus moment, you're like on the good side. So then you go to heaven. And then like people who are like bad, they go to hell. And uh, that's so common in our culture that sometimes we forget that we think that way. Um, and I was, I was talking to Sophia, and I'm like, oh, what I do is when I act poorly, I just, like, justify it and then, like, bend this line back around my own actions and be like, oh, no, here are all the reasons why that was okay. And here, like, oh, no, I'm going to justify it, and I'm just going to bend this line so that I'm always acting good and that I'm always going towards heaven. But we see that the story that the Bible presents is that heaven and earth, that they're overlapping And Genesis talks about God creating the heavens and the earth. And this is a space that he rules over. And we've been talking a lot about justice and mercy. So this is a space where God is 100. Oh, that's way too small. Anyways, this says 100%. You can't see it because it's way too small, but it says it. So this is a space where he's 100% just and 100% merciful. So he rules over the heaven and earth, 100% just, 100% merciful. So we have this heaven on earth space, and God creates it. It starts off great. He gives us an incredible job description. Um, So when he creates humans, I'm going to leave that uncapped because it doesn't want to be capped. 
Um, so when he creates humans, he we're introduced to the the idea of this garden of the Garden of Eden, and that's this heaven on earth space where these two things overlap. And as humans, we're given this job description of being God's image and His ambassadors on on earth. And He gives us the the ability to rule and to organize and to take take this space and fill it. So we have this incredible job, and we're going we're gonna to zoom in on this space now. This is really exciting. You ready for it? Wow. So there's, there's the zoom in of the, we've got heaven here, we've got earth, and then the overlap in the middle there. And God says to us, okay, I'm going to set you up here, and I want you to trust me. Because when you trust me, things are going to go really, really well, and it's going to be this beautiful space for you to live in. But what ends up happening is we choose not to trust God. And as we choose not to trust God, we're pushed out of that space. We're pushed out of the heaven on earth space. And then we exist here on earth. And what we see is in our mistrust of God, we release hell on earth. This is really sad twist of how we were supposed to be the people that, that bore the image of God and represented God on earth. But instead, we, we don't trust in God. And then we're actually, in our actions, in our mistrust, we're, we're releasing hell on earth. So then from that moment, we see God sets a rescue plan in place. A rescue plan to not get rid of us because he loves us, um, but to find a way for us to exist back and to reclaim the purpose that we had. So that's what we've been reviewing the past couple of weeks, is what is that story of the rescue plan that God sets in place? And we see that last week, we got introduced to a person named Jesus. And Jesus is interesting because he completely trusts God, 100%. He 100% trusts God. And as we see Jesus live his life, he says this thing, um, and it's the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he's saying that, he's saying, I'm bringing justice and mercy, and I'm going to love you guys really well. And what we see is actually this cool thing where the heaven on earth space it starts increasing. It starts going out this way. And what Jesus does is he, he heals the sick. And then the, the kingdom of heaven is expanded. He sees people who have been trapped under systems of injustice, that have been oppressed, and he sets them free from that. And the kingdom of God expands. He, he invites people who have been on the outside in and he loves them and he cares for them and we continue to see that as Jesus goes about his life, he's expanding the kingdom of heaven on earth as he's completely trusting God. The interesting thing is Jesus dies, raises back to life, and then he leaves, which is always surprising for me. I'm just like, it would be so convenient if Jesus didn't leave and then we could like go, now we've got planes, we could fly, visit Jesus, talk through our issues, and then great, okay, Jesus, we solved problems, like I'm going to fly back and things are great. But Jesus' goal wasn't to micromanage humanity, it was to repartner. So then as Jesus leaves, he commissions, wow, these are terrible stick people. He recommissions the church, and that becomes a group of people, and that's who we are today. And we get tasked with doing the same thing that he was doing, pushing forward the kingdom of heaven on earth. So that's what we're looking at today. And Peter, he was one of those people who was hanging out with Jesus and started the movement of the church, and he was tasked to be a leader in it. So these, this is what he says to a group of churches 
um, in the Asia area. They're new churches. And he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. We'll go next slide. So we're going to focus on three chunks of this thing today. We're going to focus on you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's kind of, he's calling to us. This is that, that empowering of us going out and caring for his work. We're going to look at now you are the people of God, how Jesus redefines what it means to be family. And then we're going to look at now you've received mercy. And really focusing on Peter, the author of this, his personal story with Jesus. So that's where we're going today. Buckle up. You can throw up the first, first verse that we had there. Perfect. Go to the next one. Awesome. So when we're talking about our, we're talking about our calling. No, this pen just does not want to cooperate with me. I'm just going to give up on it. Okay, so we're talking about our calling and the responsibility of moving forward the kingdom of heaven on earth. Um, it's really interesting to me as I've been studying this is that often I view church as like this individual spiritual moment where I come to church God and I get right, we figure out our stuff, I get encouraged, I pray, we sing some songs, I hear a sermon, it's good for me, I take some notes, I go home, and then just rinse and repeat. But God's not willing to stop with just our own individual spiritual relationship. He's wanting us to partner with him in pushing forward the kingdom of heaven. So we get this verse in Matthew where it says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it the den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So we see here that at the same time that Jesus is like healing people and setting people free from, from spiritual oppression, from being um, excommunicated in that social setting, um, we see that Jesus also cares about the larger structures. And I think this is so cool because I'm a wood salesperson. Um, it's not an obviously spiritual job. But Jesus doesn't just care about individuals. It starts with the individual, it starts with the life transformation, but then it carries forward into it carries forward into the systems that exist that are oppressing people. So you see here there's talking about the temple and these people who are exchanging money and at the time people were limiting access to the presence of God and turning a profit for it. And Jesus is not okay with that. He's not okay with people setting up barriers to be in his presence. Um, so he comes in and he challenges that system. And then as a result, we see that the blind, the lame came into the temple and they were healed. These were people that weren't allowed to come into the temple. They weren't allowed to enter in the presence of God. And as Jesus flips these, these tables over and overturns this corrupt system, we're seeing people who are previously not welcome being welcomed in. It's just such good news. Um, let's go to the next section here. It's talking about now you are the people of God. So, but once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So, as Jesus comes on the scene, um, there's this moment where um, 
he meets a, a prominent Pharisee, so a prominent religious leader, someone who would have had title and respect and would have been well-known. And they have this kind of interesting discussion behind the scenes. Um, so in John 3, 1 to 6, it said, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, so he's hiding. He's trying not to do this in public. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you, you are doing if God were not in him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So Jesus says this kind of confusing, kind of veiled thing. Um, but to unpack that, up until this point, the people of God were a, a, like a literal family. So it was like a, a group of people that were like, this guy is my grandfather. And that was like the common thing is they could all be like, yeah, our great, 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 lots of greats. Grandfather was Abraham. And they can all trace that back. So whether you were part of the people of God or not, was, it was black or white. It was either you're part of the family or not. And Jesus shows up and he says this kind of strange, veiled thing where truly I can tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born. So if you're born, you're not born into isolation. You're born into something. You're born into a family. Um, so Jesus says, no one can enter unless they are born of water and the spirit. So he's re redefining what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the family of God. And it's no longer exclusive. It's inclusive. You can't control who your parents are. You can't control who your lineage is. But now he's saying this is changing. There's a, there's a new system in play, and it's my spirit. The people who have my spirit, those people are now my family. You want to go forward to the Mark verse? So Jesus says another, another kind of interesting thing here. Oh, you know what? I didn't make a slide for that, so I'm just going to read it for you. So in Mark chapter 12, 46, this is what it says. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my brother? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whomever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Jesus is totally redefining what it means to belong in family. And it's not exclusive anymore, and it's inclusive. And the early church, they just nailed this so well. There was this practice uh, for the early church that if someone in their community was hungry and didn't have food, and the community didn't have the resources to feed them because it was already assumed that the community would feed them, the community would call a fast. They would go without eating until they had enough resources to altogether feast. People weren't left to the side. They weren't excluded. It's just such a such a convicting um, idea of how well they grasped onto this family. Like they looked at the people around them and said, you're my brother, you're my sister. And that actually meant something to them. And they acted that way. Of the church in, um, in Acts, it records this. All the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed any of his possessions 
was his own, but they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them. Can you imagine, like, no needy person among them? We live in Vancouver, and the need is pretty recognizable. Like, you just go over a couple blocks, and it's like, there's no need, and now there's tons of need. And it's just incredible to see this be written, that there was no needy person among them. For from, from time to time, those who owned lands, houses, sold them, and brought the money from the sales and put it to, at the apostles' feet. In 2 Corinthians, there's another example, and it says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, um, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the people of the Lord. There's this idea that, that they are so committed to family and they see the people around them as family that the idea of this being mine or this being not yours just doesn't exist for them. And sharing just comes so natural. And we think of like the kingdom of God pushing forward, of justice and mercy, of challenging the systems in our culture that that have are oppressive and and don't allow people to to be free from them what an incredible solution that the people of god look around at each other and say i according to the, our culture i have no reason to care for you but according to jesus you are now my brother and my sister and i'm going to care for you uh, this is a particularly challenging one for me because i like to be like the jewish religious leaders and really, like, define the people that I'm going to care for and not care for. So be like, okay, you're my family. I'll care for you. Eh, like, sort of. And, like, this is the amount I'll give. And Jesus is like, he doesn't have room for that. He's just saying, like, if you're, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are now my family. And I love you. And I'm asking you to participate and to view family in the same way that I do. And that's going to look like this radical generosity that doesn't make sense unless we actually see the people around us as brothers and sisters. Uh, four years ago, Sophia and I got married, and in Sophia's family, there's a tradition that you're, you call your in-laws mom and dad. Um, hi, mom and dad. They're up front here. This was really uncomfortable for me when I first was welcomed into the family because it wasn't a tradition that I grew up in, uh, and it took me like four or five months to actually be able to to call them mom and dad. It turns out you can go a really long time just not referring to anyone by their title. Um, so I, I pulled that off for a long time, but eventually was able to start calling them mom and dad. And then that became a, like, that became a truth where they, they now are like my mom and dad. And uh, uh, if you know them, you know that's like a huge privilege because they're people of generosity and humility and gratitude and they're incredibly hospitable. So then now for me to be part of that family means that I get to do those same things. So in the same way that Jesus is super inclusive and he's saying like, I'm not going to let the culture around us define whether or not you're in or out. We get to say, okay, that's what my father's like. And now I get to do that for other people. So Sophia's parents are about generosity and humility and hostility. So Sophie and I, we get to be, a, we get to be about that. That gets to be true about us. And I got welcomed into their family. So then now I get to do the same thing for others. And I get to say, hey, do you, do you want to be a part of this? 
And part of me sometimes wants to keep it small and exclusive because that's comfortable and safe. Uh, But Jesus just, he doesn't leave space for that. And he says, I'm going to redefine what family means. The last one we want to look at is this idea of receiving mercy. Uh, So once you were, um, at once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the, the verse that we're going through here, this was by a guy named Peter. His name was changed from Simon to Peter, so I might flip-flop back and forth between, but Simon and Peter, same person. So Simon, he's a fisherman, and he's grown up in the same town as Jesus. And uh, one day Jesus is teaching from a beach. There's a group of people around, and Jesus looks over and sees Simon. He sees his boat, and he says, can we, can we use that? Like, can I go out and... I'll preach to the people from the water so they can hear me better. So Simon agrees. He takes Jesus out. Jesus finishes preaching. And then Jesus turns to Simon and says, let's, let's go catch some fish. To which I imagine Simon would say something like, you're a teacher and a woodworker. I was out fishing all night, and we caught nothing. Like, this is, this is my trade. But he agrees, and they go out, and they catch so much fish that they have to bring multiple boats, and they're sinking and Peter and Simon, Peter, in light of this, turns to Jesus and says, oh, I'm a sinful man. He falls on his face and says, can you get away from me? Like, can you leave me? And Jesus says, uh, no, um, actually, I'd like you to follow me. <laughs> and Peter agrees, and they go on this incredible journey. We see Peter not only agree, and he becomes one of the like main 12 people um, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. He's also like part of an even closer inner circle of like three people. And they're on this amazing three-year missions trip where they're like this underground renegade group that is turning around all the systems and practices of that culture. In many ways, they're bringing revolution and they're saying there's a new king coming and it's so backwards and completely not what people would expect, but people are getting healed. There's food showing up out of nowhere. Um, there's there's demons and spiritual things that are being set free. Just the stories from that time would have been incredible. And Peter's there through it the whole way. And Peter has this interesting moment where he, uh, God reveals to Peter who Jesus is. Um, so Jesus, I'll read this chunk for you. Um, now Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What Simon's saying is you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one. And in that culture, you'd anoint kings, you'd anoint priests, and you'd anoint prophets. So he's saying you are the king that we've been waiting for. You're the priest that's going to make a way for us to be in relationship with God. You're the prophet who's going to share the words of God with us. And you're not just a human. You're like a God human. You're the son of the living God. So he has this incredible moment where he he realizes, like, Jesus is this fisherman or this teacher and woodworker that's grown up with him, and they've been in the same town. And he comes to recognize that there's actually a lot more going on here the son of the living God. Um, And at this moment, Jesus 
changes Peter Simon's name to Peter, um, and he makes this incredible claim about the church going forward, and he kind of installs Peter as this leader figure. So now not only is Peter like one of the 12, he's also part of the closer three, and he's also been given this kind of special role as a leader in the church. And that takes us all up to this moment where it's right before Jesus is going to be crucified, and he's having this final meal, um, and he has this interaction with Peter. So you want to throw up the Luke 22 slide? So it says, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he, Simon, replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, or deny three times that you know me. Uh, in, in Matthew, there's another, um, the way Matthew records it is, even if all others fall, uh, fall away on account of you, I will never. So Peter is, Jesus saying, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, nope, not going to happen. He's confident. Um, and we see the story go on to say about an hour later, Oh, sorry. Let me, let me set up the rest of the story here. So uh, Jesus gets arrested. He's taken off. The disciples flee. Peter sticks with him, and he falls from a distance. Jesus is pulled into a courtroom, and there's a bunch of people trying to accuse him because they're really set on killing him. Peter posts up at this, like, fire area close enough to be able to see Jesus, and he's sitting there. He's watching. He's waiting. One person comes and says, hey, you look familiar, like, certainly you were one of the guys that was with Jesus. Like, we've seen you. We know you. And Peter's like, nope, not me. Not me. Happens again. He says, nope, I'm not that guy. And then, well, let's pull up, the, pull up the Luke verse. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, Jesus, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord has spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Every time I read this, it's just like, oh man, your heart, like it. Peter has been like with Jesus for three years. He's like his closest right-hand man. And in the climactic moment, the moment he said, I'm never going to leave you, up to death. Peter just like denies Jesus and totally leaves him out. And in that moment, Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. Uh, I was thinking through this and the surprising piece is that Jesus isn't angry. He's not surprised. He's not upset. In Peter's moment of failure, he looks at Peter he looks at him straight in the eye and he has mercy on him. And he says, I am dying now. I'm going to the cross literally right now so that you don't have to. In your moment of betrayal, I'm going to the cross because I love you so much. I want to make a way to be in a relationship. And we can't do that if you have to die. We can't do that. But I'm going to die so we can carry forward relationship. I can't imagine what those three days between, between Jesus dying and him raising... I'm sure Peter had, a, had quite the emotional load um, as he's just processing this. 
But that takes us back to the earlier verse in Luke, if you want to throw that up. Um, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail. It wasn't a surprise to him that he wasn't going to act rightly. Jesus' prayer was that Peter wouldn't lose faith. Faith in what? Faith that Jesus would pay the price. Faith that Jesus would make a way. In the same way as like Abraham's lugging, if you remember the Abraham stories, he's like lugging all the wood up with his son. He's confident that God will make a way. In the same way here, Peter is, or Jesus is praying, don't lose faith in me. Peter, you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to act rightly, but don't lose faith in who I am. Remember who I am and what I'm going to do for you. So we see, uh, we see Peter in this moment faced with a decision. He has to choose whether he's going to trust God or mistrust. Is he going to trust that God's going to extend grace to him? Or the cultural practice at the time was if you, if you committed treason, if you betray a king, you get beheaded, and then they seize all of your property. So basically, the cultural practice for the Romans was if you commit treason, we'll make it like you never existed. So Peter's processing this. Is it going to happen to me like what I see in the culture around me? Or do I get to trust God that he's going to be merciful to me and make a way for me to be back in relationship with him? So we go forward to um, a couple days later, Jesus is risen. There's a story about Peter running to the tomb. I love this story because Adam, when he fails, Adam runs and hides. Peter, when he fails, he runs towards Jesus. He just can't wait to be with him again. So in the end of John, we pick up the story where uh, Jesus is he's risen and he's kind of appearing to the disciples at these separate times. Um, and Peter... He's with, his, he's with the disciples. He's with the people. He's leading them, and he does what he knows how to do. He says, I'm going fishing. Um, so they go out fishing, and it's a familiar story. They're out. They catch nothing all night. On the morning, they're on their way back, haven't caught anything. They see a person on the shore. He calls out to them. They say, have you caught anything? They say, nope. He says, throw out the nets on one side. See what you catch. So they do it, and they pull up a massive catch. At that, they clue in that the person on the beach is Jesus, and Peter throws on his robe, jumps in the water, and just like beelines it straight to Jesus. He just can't wait to be with him. Jesus and Peter have this interaction where they go back and forth, and Jesus says, uh, um, he says, uh, sorry, let me pull up the part here. He says, um, after breaking breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, he told them. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Jesus said, or, and the Lord, he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus was asking the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he told him, follow me. This is incredible story of, of the redemption of Jesus making a way as we try in our best efforts to trust him, to be back in relationship with him. And in the same way that 
that Peter denies Jesus three times, he's allowed to profess his love for him again. And as we track that story, what we see is Peter then gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes out and he leads the life that God was asking him to do. He becomes this incredible leader. And to the same crowd, the same groups of people that he was denying Jesus, he's boldly preaching the truth about who Jesus is, about Jesus' character. It's this incredible point in the story where we see that the foundation of the church is Jesus' mercy and his commitment for us to make a way for us to trust him and to be back in relationship with him. He knows that we're not going to act rightly. He knows that we're not going to be perfect. He knows that we're not going to always do the right thing. So he makes a way for us to exist in relationship with him. And then as a church, pride and self-centeredism, if that's a word, that just doesn't get to exist because we know that we're only here, we only can exist here because of the mercy that's been extended to us. And as God has extended his great mercy, we then get, go get to extend it. And that's how we see the kingdom of heaven push forward. Uh, I'm going to invite the, uh, the band to come back up. I wrote some concluding statements here, so I'm just going to read through these. To God's people, that's us, we recognize the incredible mercy that we've received, that in the moment of our own rebellion and mistrust, Jesus looks at us with mercy and love and says, I'll die in your place so that we can go on living together and I can restore you to the beautiful purpose I've called you to. We hold on and proclaim to the truth that it's not by our efforts or by our right actions, but it's by faith, and faith that Jesus makes a way for us to be restored. And in view of God's mercy, we begin to extend mercy to others. We don't let culture define who we care for, but we see others around us as brothers and sisters. And finally, as Jesus restores us, he gives us the gift of the Spirit. And through the Spirit, we repartner with him in restoring the world and pushing forward the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of love, and challenging the injustice that we see around us and extending mercy to others. The final picture of this is the complete reuniting of heaven and earth, where there's no more overlap. There the circles are totally on top of each other. Heaven and earth are one. And in Revelation, we get this beautiful picture. It's a vision of what the end game is going to look like, what the final result is. It says, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away.